All right, good evening, everybody. Hey, let's, uh, we're going to start tonight with a word of prayer. We got uh, several people uh, that are uh, sick. I know Brother Ralph is, is real sick with COVID. Um, I know Scott Gerald's real sick, and I know we got a few others um, as, as well in the body. So if you will, let's join me in prayer for these. Father, uh, Lord, we come to you. Uh, you are our healer, our provider. Uh, you are everything to us. And, and Lord, uh, you said we have not because we don't ask. So I come to you tonight, and Lord, I bring these people that are suffering uh, right now with these sicknesses. Lord, I just bring them and hold them up uh, before you, Ralph, Scott, any others. Uh, if you know somebody, just whisper their name. And, and whoever it is, Lord, I ask you to touch them. I ask you to be with them. I ask you to strengthen them and to heal them and bring them through this time of sickness. Lord, if it's your will... Uh, just touch them right now, this very second, God, and make them completely whole. Uh, God, we ask it. We believe it. We know you can do it, and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you got your Bibles and you want to follow along with us tonight, we're, of course, going through the book of Romans. And uh, tonight we are, uh, we've been in chapter 8 for three or four weeks now, and tonight we come to Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 9 through 11, and our topic is the coming resurrection. So we got some good stuff for you tonight. Now, we all know, and we should know by now, it told us in Romans 6, and it told us again in Romans 7, and it told us again in Romans 8, that we are all born onto this planet. Um, And it's what the Bible calls, we are born of the flesh. And what that means is we come into this world just natural human beings, and we have limitations because of that, right? In fact, listen to how Paul describes uh, this group of people that, that would, we would just call human beings. He says this, that the mind that is set on the flesh, they are hostile to God. They do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot submit to God's law. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when you come into this world, you are born into a group of people, and that is who you are. Okay? So that's, that's one group of people. Now tonight, in Romans 8, 9, Paul starts out like this. You, however, or you on the other hand. You see, Paul is writing this letter to a different group of people. This is a people that used to be in the flesh but they've been transferred out of that group, and now they are in another group. And this is, of course, a group of people that has been born again by the Spirit of God. Now tonight, in Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11, I'm going to show you five ways Paul tells us that Christians are different from the rest of the world. And then I'm going to show you one way in which we are exactly the same. Okay, five ways that Christians are different one way in which we are exactly the same as everybody else. So number one, if you are a Christian, the Bible says the Spirit of God dwells in you. Let's read verse 9. It says, You, however, Paul writes, are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So if you are a Christian tonight... Uh, By definition, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, we don't want to overlook that word dwells. That is the Greek word oikos, which comes from the word for house or home. What, What Paul wants you to understand is you are not a hotel to the Holy Spirit. You're not a hostel. You're not a bed and breakfast. He's not a, he's not a guest in your house for a few days. You are his home. 
You are his abode. That is where he dwells. In John 14, Jesus said this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to dwell or to be with you, say it with me, forever. He's not here. This isn't a short-term thing. He's moved in permanently. Even the Spirit of truth, you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Now, the idea here of dwelling is this idea of permanence or familiarity, or and the word I like is influence. Um, I was thinking this week, Kathy and I were married in 1983. This year will be 38 years that we've been together. And when you live together, and, and many of you know this, when you live together in a home with somebody for that long, it, after a while, it's not about just you, is it? When, you, when you, you're so close with each other that you begin to think, I don't make decisions without thinking about her. What would she think about this? What would she want me to do? What, what's her opinion on this? You, 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 became, you become one. You become, there's a familiarity. Listen, the exact same thing should be true with the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit, how, do you, how, do you, how can you go through life, not even re, if, if the Holy Spirit is actually in you, how could you go through life not being influenced by Him, not being familiar with Him, not, not uh, everybody with me? That, that just doesn't make any sense. So the, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Number two, not only does the Spirit dwell in us, but it says that we are in the Spirit. Read verse 9 again. He said this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, what does he mean by in the Spirit? Well, notice the parallel with in the flesh. He says you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. You see, to be in the flesh means that you are under the captivity to flesh. It means you're under bondage to flesh. It means that you're, you're under the domain or the rule, the influence of your flesh. To be in the Spirit means the opposite. It means you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It means you're under his domain, his power, his rule, and his authority and his influence. Number three, Paul says, if you're a Christian, you belong to Christ. Let's read it again, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And, of course, the opposite of that is if you have the Spirit, then you do belong to him. There was a time in this country, uh, I wasn't around, but I've read history books where people in the east were encouraged to go out west and do something called homesteading. You've probably read about that, right? If you, you, there was a time where you could literally pack up your family, pack up your belongings and move out west. And if you wanted to get a piece of land, all you had to do was just settle your roots and build a house. And you could just lay claim to your 40 acres or whatever the case. You didn't have to pay a thing. They encouraged, that was known as homesteading. Now, the more normal way to acquire a piece of property or a piece of land, of course, is to purchase it. You see, Jesus did both of those for us. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That's homesteading. Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That's the purchase. You see, he bought us with his own blood, and then he moved in. He's not just buying us like a piece of property and says, hey, I'm gonna, I'll sell it, I won't live on it. No, no, he purchased us, and then he moved in. So he purchased and he homesteaded. Now, that is three ways that we are unlike the rest of the world. There's one way in which we are exactly like the rest of the world. Look at verse 10. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. Okay? In this age, I am filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in me. But this body is exactly the same as it was before. It's just wasting away. Right? Um, I used to hear people talk about this stuff, and I thought, that'll never happen to me. And then... One day you start getting out of bed and things hurt. The bottom of your feet hurt. Your knees hurt. You can't bend over and pick up socks off the floor. And your, your body's just getting, it's just wasting away. You see, redemption happens in stages. Your body is not redeemed in this age. That doesn't come until the next age. So our bodies are wasting away. And here's the way that we're just like everybody else. We are going to die. Our bodies are going to die. Now we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. The fourth way that we are unlike the rest of the world is we are spiritually uh, alive. Romans 8.10 says this, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now what does Paul mean? Well, what he's meaning is the gift of righteousness has been purchased for you on the cross, right? That's that's the purchase that we just talked about. But the presence of Christ in us applies that life to us today. Okay, now let me say that again because this is something people really have trouble understanding. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. When I was 11 years old, I knelt at an altar and I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And on that day... His life came into me. You see, this is something you need to understand about yourself, Christian. Most Christians think, I'm going to live this life, and then I'm going to die, and I'm going to start my eternal life. No. My eternal life started when I was 11 years old. Your your eternal life started the day the Holy Spirit came into you. That was the day you started your eternal life. You see, I'm going to get to the end of my life, and, and that life that's in me is never going to end. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth Him should not, what? Perish. I can't die. This body's going to die. This tent's going to die. But the life that's in me, that's been given to me by the Holy Spirit, that cannot end. I love that story of Lazarus and the rich man. It says, when Lazarus the beggar died, it says, angels took him up to Abraham's side. I mean, he just went straight up. I I love that, man. I just don't think there'll ever be any kind of discontinuation. The moment this body ceases to breathe and the brain function ceases, our spirit just just moves right on. That life cannot cannot end. Okay, I got a problem. Any idea, Chuck, what's going on? Whoop, there we go. All right, sorry about that. All right. Okay, so... The question becomes then, and a lot of people have this, what about our body? Okay, what's going to happen to our body? Yes, we got this life of the Spirit, but what's going to happen to our body? Well, the Scripture tells us that our bodies will one day rise to be with Christ forever. Look at verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Uh, in you. Now, this promise, there's a wonderful promise here, okay? There's this promise that one day the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit, is going to raise your body up. But notice that that promise starts with a big if. 
if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. You see, this is the if of your conversion. Romans 10.9 says this, If you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believing in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you done that? Are you sure? Are you 100% absolutely sure that the Spirit of God is dwelling in you right now? If He is, you're a Christian. If He isn't, you're not. Are you sure? There's this if, by the way, let's go back to Romans 10.9. If you'll confess with your mouth with the Lord Jesus, believing in your heart, what? That God has raised him from the dead. That's another big if. Is the resurrection real? Do you know you have to believe that? You understand if the resurrection's not real, we just go home. This is a complete waste of time. We are absolutely... You see, if either of those ifs are not true, then the promises are not true. If the resurrection's not real, let's go home. And if it is real and you don't believe in it, then you might as well go home because none of the promises are going to apply to you. So if I had two questions that I could ask you tonight, just two, it would be these. Number one, are you sure God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe that down in the very deepest part of your heart? Don't you think about that for just a moment. Do you really believe that 2,000 years ago in a little backwater country called Israel... In, in a, in a, from a rich man's tomb, that God raised a man named Jesus from the dead. Do you really believe that? And by the way, if, if that's true, and you're sure of that, are you sure that you've put your faith in Him? Are you sure that that same Spirit that raised Him 2,000 years ago now dwells inside of you? Man, those are two incredibly important questions. Now, we're only going to deal with one of them tonight. We'll come back next week um, and deal with the other one. Are you sh- the next week we'll say, are you sure the Spirit of God dwells in you? And tonight I'm going to talk about, are you sure God raised Jesus from the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. I said it before, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then everything he said is a lie. If he didn't rise from the dead, he, he's just a man. He's not the Son of God. He's not the Savior of the world. He's not the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. He's not any of those things. It's a lie. And we are... Paul says, I think, somewhere else, it, we are, if, if, if the resurrection isn't real, we are to be pitied. Just go home, man. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die because this is it. If the resurrection isn't real, then this is all a lie. But see, here's the other thing. If it is true, then it's all true. Let me say that again. If it is true, if He really came out of that grave, then He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Lamb of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to get to heaven. And you see, everything hinges on the resurrection. Everything. Tonight I'm going to give you three evidences for the resurrection. I believe that the resurrection is probably one of the most well-documented miracles in history. Now, I've got a... There, complete books have been written. I've got, actually got a book in storage right now. It's about two inches thick, and it's on the historicity of the uh, resurrection. I mean, it's two inches thick, some guy wrote, right? 
I'm just going to give you three things, okay? I'm not going to belabor the point tonight, but I want to give you three things that, to me, prove the resurrection. Now, do I need proof? Not really. Um, I just believe it some way down deep in my heart. I was talking to someone not too long ago about Noah's Ark, and uh, they were telling me that there's a team of archaeologists that are trying to uncover Noah's Ark, and they asked me, what do I think about that? And I said, well... You know, I mean, that's cool, I guess, but if they don't find it, that doesn't change anything. And if they do find it, that doesn't change anything for me. I believe it. I believe it because I trust God. I don't believe it because I got... I believe it because I know God and God God doesn't lie. That's why I believe it. So I believe in the resurrection because the Bible tells me, but the Bible hasn't left us without proof, okay? So I'm going to give you three facts. And when I say facts tonight, I literally mean facts, okay? Number one is the empty tomb. Now, what I want to do tonight is I want you to think with me for just a moment. We are sitting here tonight in 2021. Okay, 2,000 years have gone by. And there are literally millions, hundreds of millions of Christians around the world today. But if we started backtracking down through the centuries, it all goes back to Jerusalem, doesn't it? It all, that, this, whether you believe in all this or anything, this religion called Christianity goes all the way back, 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 and it started in a little town called Jerusalem. And in that town, there's a story begins to go around. And this story is being told of an empty tomb. Now, here's the first thing I want you to see. When this story begins to be told... They, they tell it, and, and the, some of the first actors or players in this story are women. Now, what you have to understand about first century Jerusalem is that you would have never made up a story where women discovered the open tomb because in first century Judaism, a woman's testimony was worthless. It, you couldn't even take her into a court of law and have her testify. It was absolutely worthless. So they have this story about these women finding it. And not only that, one of the women who finds it is Mary Magdalene, who is known in that city to have been possessed by demons. So if you were making this story up, this is the very last thing you would have said, hey, a bunch of women found it. No, you would have said Joseph of Arimathea found it or, or some other prom- Nicodemus or some other prominent man. In fact, if you wanted to make up a story that people would just about discount right off the bat, that's the story, that's the way you would have started the story. On the first day of the week, a group of women came. That's you, The only reason you would say that is why? Because it's true. You would never just make that up. Number two, do you understand that this story is not proclaimed in Rome? It's not being told in Turkey. It's not being told in Italy. It's being told in the same place where the tomb is. Right? They're out on the street saying, the, the tomb is empty. He's a, he's a rose. Do you understand? All they had to do was say, hold on a minute. Let's go down here and check out the body. But nobody did that. The Jews couldn't produce a body. The Romans couldn't produce a body. Nobody could produce a body. That's all they had to do to shut this new religion down. Stop it, nip it in its bud, stop it in its tracks. All they had to do was say, here's the body. But they couldn't. Why? 
because the tomb was empty. They could not produce a body. Now, are you with me? You understand the Romans wanted to shut it down. The Jews wanted to shut it down. All they had to do was produce a body, and yet they couldn't. Even skeptics today, even uh, secular uh, historians who don't even believe in the resurrection, even they believe the tomb was empty. Even they say there's no doubt the tomb was empty because they would have just produced a body. By the way, even the Jews admitted the tomb was empty. If you go back and read the gospel, I believe, of Matthew chapter 27, the guards came to the Jews and said, man, these angels came and rolled the stone away. And and they said, here, take a bunch of money. Just tell them that while you were sleeping, the, the disciples stole it. And by the way, that same story is told outside the Bible in some first century Jewish writings where they, they repeat that story. It was repeated all down through the early years that the disciples stole the body. One more thing about it, the empty tomb. There was a custom in that first century that when a holy man died, they would set up a shrine at his tomb to venerate his bones. The tomb was never venerated as a shrine. Now, when you get down the 5th or 6th century, 7th century, the Catholic Church eventually tried to build a church and all that kind of stuff. But in the 1st century, they never built a shrine. because there was Why? Because there was nothing there. So I believe the empty tomb, as many others do, is an undeniable fact without any kind of natural explanation. So if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, you're left with an empty tomb that's just this... Uh, It's just a mystery, okay? Number two, fact number two, and this is the change in the disciples. Except for John, every single disciple was martyred for their faith. And I mean in terrible ways. That Peter was crucified upside down. I think one of them was boiled in oil. Uh, just, Just horrible ways. Every single one of them died for their belief in a resurrected Jesus. Now, we got three alternatives here. That, that is an undeniable fact, by the way. We got three alternatives. Number one, they were liars. Okay? Number one, they're liars. They stole that body and they hid it away somewhere and they made up a story about Jesus rising from the dead and they started telling everybody this story and they're just a bunch of liars. If that's the case, then you're left with a group of men... Ten of them, 11, I guess it would be 11 with Matthias. Eleven men who died believing that Jesus... I'm sorry, they would have died for a lie. Now, you may say to me tonight, well, listen, Derek, people die for a lie all the time. Look at the suicide bombers in Islam. They die for a lie. That's true. But see, they believe that to be true, right? They believe when they die they're going to heaven and get the 99 virgins or whatever else they they believe. But see, if the disciples died for a lie, they knew it was a lie. So are you going to tell me that these men who denied Christ, these same men who were so scared they, they hid away in a room and for, afraid, for fear the, the Romans or the Jews are going to find them, you're going to try to tell me that these same men, all of them, had the courage to die horrible deaths for something that they knew was a lie? I I just can't believe that, can you? In fact, to me, that would be a greater miracle than Jesus rising from the dead. I don't think there's any way that could have happened. So this leads us to the second fact. To me, it's obvious that they believed they had seen the risen Lord. 
Now, just because they believe they had seen something, there's a lot of people today who says, oh, I saw something, and they believe they saw it, but at the end of the day, it really wasn't what it was. But they believed that Jesus, they had seen the risen Lord. Now, there is a second alternative, and that is they were hallucinating. That is an alternative. Maybe they just hallucinated. Now, let me say, first of all, these aren't mentally unstable people, okay? Uh, Do you remember what Thomas said when they said, we've seen the Lord? What did Thomas say? I ain't going to believe it until you show him to me. I won't believe it until I put my fingers in the holes in his hands. These aren't... These aren't wishy-washy guys, right? So are you want me to believe that those guys hallucinated, not one of them, but all of them at the same time? I just can't believe that. I, I don't want to think that's even clear at all. See, that only leaves us with one final alternative, and that is they really saw the risen Christ. They really saw the risen Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go with with that one. That seems that that explains their behavior much better than any of those other options. Number 3, and again, I could go on and on. I'm going to give you one more, and that is changes in others. Let's take Paul for an example. Paul was a notorious persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. He's going around the country, he's throwing them in jail, he's killing them, he's having them he's having them stoned to death, he's doing all these things. And then all of a sudden that guy who who hated Christians, who wanted to, to wipe the name of Jesus off the face of the earth, all of a sudden that guy does 180 degrees. And now he says, I only boast in one thing, and that's the cross of Christ. To me, the world is nothing. It's garbage. How does that guy do that? What, what makes somebody change like that? Or how about Jesus' brothers? In one of the Gospels, it says that Jesus' brothers thought he was insane. They got a brother. They grew up with him, right? They, they, they played tag with him. They went fishing with him. They, they, they helped their dad build things. And all of a sudden, he's out there saying he's forgiven sins. He's out there saying that God is his father. And it says they wanted to put him away. They thought he was insane. But yet those same brothers... On the, night, on the day of Pentecost are in the upper room with their mother. Those same brothers are, are, are out in there preaching. James, by the way, the brother of Jesus, becomes one of the leading apostles in the church in, in Jerusalem. The guy that thought his brother was crazy ended up being thrown off the temple and it didn't kill him. And, and, and Josephus, by the way, recounting his death, says they threw him off the temple... And when they went down, he was still alive, and a fuller, who's a, who's a guy that does laundry, had a stick, and he beat him to death with that stick. And he did that. What, what makes somebody go from thinking their brother is crazy to being able to give his life for that same brother? Or, or Jude, the book of Jude, that's Jesus' brother. What, what changed these men to flip around 180 degrees? See, I only think there's one explanation for that kind of life change, and that is they've seen the risen Christ. You see, anybody who really takes the time to really think about the resurrection and to think this through, see, I think there's plenty of evidence to believe it. And what I'm going to tell you next is probably one of the saddest things I'll say. You know what people's real problem is? They just don't care. 
Most people just don't care. Oh, do you believe in the resurrection? Well, I'd talk about that, but I need to go post on Facebook. Let's talk about the resurrection. Eh, you know, I'd do that, but uh, uh, i, I got to go to the mall. Oh, there's a football game. I mean, we'll do anything but really sit down and think about the most important thing that we could ever think about. People just don't care. But I do. <laughs> I care. I believe. And guess what? There is a promise for me. Let's read Romans eight eleven again. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you and in me. Then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. I want to talk for just a few minutes here about our bodies. And we're going to get more into this in a couple of weeks. I think Romans 8.23 talks about the redemption of our bodies. And we're going to talk about what kind of bodies we're going to have and, and what does the Bible tell us. But I just want to cover one thing here tonight. God cares about our bodies, okay? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and He'll also raise us up by His power. If you go back and you read that verse in context, in that day, most religions thought the body was nothing. They thought it was all about being spiritual, as long as you were spiritual, then you could do whatever you wanted to do. You could have relations with temple prostitutes. That was fine, as long as your spirit was okay. And they said the body really doesn't matter. It's just, it's just a tent. It's wasting away. It's going to die. Paul writes this and says, no. No, 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 no. Your body is for the Lord. See, what he's telling us is your body exists right now. Even in this pitiful thing that it is, and even though it's wasting away and your hair's turning gray or falling out or whatever, your body still exists to bring glory to God. You see, there's a way that your, your eyes and, your, and your, your tongue and your, your, your hearing and your uh, sexual appetites, there's a way they can glorify God and there's a way they can dishonor God. And God cares about our bodies. But not only does He care about them in this life, God cares about them forever. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also going to be a spiritual body. Over the years, when talking about the resurrection thing, I, I always hear a lot of questions, right? How, how can a dead body rise? I, I remember, I remember uh, teenagers asking me, well, what about, what about people that got ate by sharks? Or they got eight by six sharks, right? And they all went to different parts of the world. Or what about shipwrecked people whose bones are scattered? Or, or what about people that got blown to, to, be, to pieces? Or what about cremated people that are just thrown up in the air and their ashes are scattered? Or, or what about somebody that's just been in the ground for thousands of years and they've basically turned to dust? How, how did those people come back to life? That's one question that, that people have. And the second question that people always seem to have is, what, what kind of, what are our spiritual bodies going to look like? What are our new bodies going to look like? You know, I always say this. If you've got questions, ask them because the Bible has answers. You know, if you go back and look, the people in the first century had the exact same questions you did. 1 Corinthians 15, 35, Paul says this. Someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? It's the same questions that we all have. If you've been around me long enough, you hear this say, listen, people don't change. 
right? Human nature doesn't change. Culture changes, society changes, technology changes, but, but the people in the first century are just like us. They have the same fears, the same worries, the same anxieties, the same hopes. They're exactly the same. They got the same questions that we got. So I'm going to let Paul answer these for you tonight. How, is, how are these bodies raised and what kind of body will we have? 1 Corinthians 15, 36 to 38. Paul says this, you foolish person. <laughs> um, Paul says, how do you not see this? Basically is what he's saying. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. Now, let me say, first of all, about Paul, this is absolutely brilliant. What, what he says right here to explain the resurrection is absolutely brilliant. And it's so easy to understand, and it's so in your face that I just, every time I read it, I'm like, wow, that is, that's incredible. So what he wants us to do, he wants us to understand the resurrection. He wants to understand how can a body that's been in the ground for thousands of years and been eaten by sharks or whatever, how can that body be raised up? And to help us understand the resurrection, he gives us an analogy or an example. And the example that he gives us is the example of the seed. Now, I want you to think about something. I, I wish I had brought some seeds with me tonight, but I didn't. But if I gave you a seed tonight, let's just say I just, you know, went to Just Fruits or something, and I took a seed and I, I gave it to you. Unless you were very familiar with that seed, you would have no idea by looking at that seed what it was going to produce, would you? You'd have no clue. You see, the seed doesn't produce another seed just like it, does it? It produces much more than that. Um, the seed, in fact, it's incredible when you think about the process, right? Take a seed and you just put it in the ground. And that seed's got no life in it whatsoever. And you add some moisture and it begins to decompose and then this crazy thing happens, right? I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And what the seed produces is vastly not only different, but vastly superior to itself, isn't it? Let me give you a couple of examples. This is a seed that we're very familiar with. Some of you, if you looked at it long enough, you'd know that those seeds is going to produce that right? What about these seeds? These seeds are smaller than a matchstick, and they produce pineapples. What does that produce? Who in the world would have ever thought that that would produce that? I mean, who would ever think that by looking at it? Listen, who would ever think by looking at this that one day I'm going to be, wow, <laughs> Wow, you got no clue that this, just looking at this one day, this is going to go in the ground, and one day he's going to come, what's going to come out ain't nothing like this. It ain't nothing like this. And here's the thing. I ran across this the other day. Time doesn't matter. Incredible article. It turns out that Israel is the number one producer of dates in the world, or the number one exporter of dates, which come from the date palm. And I, I was watching a video on it, and it turns out that all the date palms in Israel have actually been brought in from Egypt. That the original date palms that existed in Jesus' day went extinct about the 5th century. They just all died off. 
So they had to bring in new date palms from Egypt. So all the date palms in Israel today are from actually from Egypt. And about in the 1940s, archaeologists were excavating the Masada Fortress. You remember, you all know where the Masada Fortress was? They were excavating this fortress, and they found these urns. Now, the Masada Fortress, by the way, was destroyed around 70 A.D., so about 40 years after, after Jesus. And they found these urns, and inside of these urns were date palms. I'm sorry, uh, dates. Now, they were, you can imagine, 2,000 years. They were, they were dried up to nothing. And so they just sat there in a jar for years and years and years until technology came along. And a few years ago, they actually figured out a way to get those things to germinate. And they now are growing the original date palms that were alive in Jesus' day. 2,000 years and those seeds came back to life. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. Now, here's the analogy that Paul wants us to get. Just as that seed dies and produces something not only completely unlike itself, that is exactly going to be the case with our bodies. It's exactly going to be the case with our bodies. You see, our bodies are going to go into that ground. They're going to die. And God is going to raise us up in a completely different form. Okay? Now, what that form is, I don't know. Okay, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. I'll let you know. So here's what I want you to see tonight. Is the resurrection a mystery? Yeah, absolutely. Do we understand everything about it? No. But the mystery of the resurrection is no more of a mystery than the mystery of the seed, is it? Anybody figured out how that works? Anybody got figure out how you can take a little acorn and put it in the ground and, and it just produces this unbelievable oak tree? You see, the process of death and resurrection happens around us every single day. Isn't that amazing? People, it's literally happening. People say, oh, I can't believe in the resurrection, and it happens every single day. I want to say, well, you must not believe in tomato sandwiches because you're, every single day, there's a tomato, there's a seed producing a tomato, and you're throwing it on a bread with some mayonnaise and eating it. Every single day, it's right here in front of us. I, I don't know this for sure, but I just think one day we'll stand before God Romans 1 says the, 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 the evidence of Him was always there. It was always in our... It was right in front of us every single day, and we just couldn't appreciate it. So far from the decomposition of our bodies being a detriment to the resurrection, it's actually a necessity. That's exactly how the seed works. New life comes from death. That's just the way it happens. It is an excellent analogy, and and Paul, like I said, it's absolutely brilliant. So once again, you may say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection because I don't understand it. You might as well say, well, I don't believe in farming. I don't believe in in any of that because it's happening every single day uh, right in front of you. Again, you can say, well, I don't believe, you may not believe an oak tree can come out of an acorn. Can you imagine if if I was thinking, if I took an acorn to my little granddaughter, and I said, hey, that one day is going to turn into that. She'd say, are you crazy? <laughs> There's no way that can turn into that, but it does. It does, doesn't it? Every single day. Now, what does it become? Paul says God determines that. Look at 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-eight. God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. God has got a plan for you and me. God has got a plan for you and me. Philippians 3.21 says this, 
He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Matthew 13, 43 says this, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. The book of Daniel says that one day there will be a resurrection and the wicked will arise to judgment, but the just will arise to shine like stars. Can you imagine? There's going to be something about these glorious bodies that we are going to shine like the sun. I, I, I don't understand it, but I believe it. I believe it with all of my heart. You see, it's always been God's plan. When He created Adam and Eve and He made them in His image, He gave them bodies. It's always been God's plan for us to have a body. And the people that have died right now and gone to Paul says, if you're absent from the body, you're with the Lord. The state that they're in right now, in this spiritual state, absent from their body, that's not going to last forever. That's only for a period of time. When Christ comes again, they're going to be rejoined to their bodies, and it's going to be a glorious thing. He is going to raise our bodies so strong and so beautiful and so healthy and so glorious, and it's, it, it, we're not even going to be able to believe it. Eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love You. And God, I, I believe right now, I just state in front of all these people, I believe that You rose out of that grave. I believe You are the Messiah. I believe You're the Savior. I believe You're the Lamb of God. I believe, I believe, I believe. And God, thank You. Thank You for dying for me. But more than that, thank You that you rose, because you live, I'm going to live. Because you walked out of that grave, we are now able to walk out of that grave. God, if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you, that they're unsure in their heart whether they even believe in the resurrection, and they're certainly unsure in their heart whether the Spirit of God dwells within them, and they're certainly unsure whether they belong to you. Father, let this be the night. Let this be the night. Where they, where they fall on their knees, they humble themselves, and they accept you as their Lord and as their Savior. God, we give you glory. We give you honor. God, validate your word in our heart tonight. Take that word, God, these, these pitiful words that I speak. You do what you do, and you just take your word, and you drive it home, and you make it real, and you cement it inside of us so deep that nothing Nothing can ever steal it away. In Jesus' name, amen.